Welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God. This evening is our third session uh, in this study, and I want to begin with a little bit of review of the material that we covered last week before we uh, dive into this evening. Last week we looked at uh, what we called the common kingdom, Uh, and this is simply um, the kingdom uh, of God in this world that is common to all men. And so that was what we said. We, we draw these two overlapping circles. What happened to my marker? Uh, so we have the common kingdom over here. And it is whose kingdom? It's God's kingdom. It's Christ's kingdom. Christ rules over it. But he rules over it, we saw last week, by means of the Noahic covenant. That's how he has organized the government of this kingdom that is common to all of creation. And we saw that even the the animals are governed uh, in this. The creation itself is governed in in the Noahic covenant. But all men are governed in the Noahic covenant. All men who are currently living in the flesh. And we saw that God delegates authority in the common kingdom uh, in three ways. So we saw that he delegates it to, um, if I can write here, to the individual, that he delegates authority to the family, and that he delegates authority to the civil government. And we used this term civil intentionally, not secular. There's no such thing as a secular government. That would imply that the government was separated from God in some way. But the governments that exist have been instituted by God and they are delegated whatever authority they have from God and we saw that they are accountable to God for how they use that authority. Uh, And so we talked about the delegation of authority in these three spheres uh, that, you know, the individual uh, has a certain amount of authority over themselves, over their thoughts, and over their bodies. And we saw that uh, Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience. And so a father cannot dictate to his children what thoughts will be in their head. And the government cannot dictate to its citizens what thoughts they will think. And so when we think about uh, Orwell's book, 1984, and the idea of the thought police and thought crime, it, that strikes us as wrong and as totalitarian because it is. The civil government isn't supposed to be trying to control how its citizens think and what they think. Uh, And the same thing, an individual has certain rights over their body. We looked at uh, the institution of the laws of national Israel concerning rape, that a a woman has some authority over her body. It's not just up for grabs for any man that that wants to to do what he wills with her body. Uh, And then we looked at the family. It has authority in the family, um, submission of the wife to the husband, the parent's responsibility and duty to raise and discipline their children, and then the civil government that has authority from God to punish evildoers. That was the primary thing we looked at, and we talked about uh, what that looked like, uh, that it was justice that was enacted in in certain fashion, that it was retributive justice that happens after the crime is committed, proportional justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Uh, punishment fits the crime is what we talked about, and that it is preventative and that it is supposed to encourage those people, the citizens, to do good and discourage them from doing evil. Uh, So there are limits and boundaries to all of this delegated authority, and each one of these institutions is accountable to God for how they use the authority delegated to them. Uh, But it was the Noahic covenant that provided the basis for 
uh, this government of the world that is common to all men. But we noted that believers who are still alive in the flesh are part of this because, you know, we're all men. We're part of that. But we're also citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as we looked about at, uh, in the first session. Uh, and so this evening, what I want to do is I want to look this evening at uh, the kingdom of heaven and the government of it, primarily as it relates to the visual representation of the kingdom, which is the church. And so we saw that the common kingdom was established and governed by means of the Noahic covenant. And so tonight we'll see that the government of the kingdom in the church is governed by means of the new covenant. So we are, to some extent, talking about covenant theology which is part and parcel of what it means to be reformed. We're not going to go down the path of a full-blown covenant theology tonight, but I do want to point you towards a resource. If covenant theology is new to you, uh, go to 1689federalism.com. That's 1689, the word federalism.com. It's a fantastic source, lots of great resources, uh, articles, books that are recommended reading, and there's a series of videos on the front page of that um, on 1689 Federalism, which is a way of saying the covenant theology of our confession, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. There's a video there that introduces what that covenant theology is as it's set out in our confession. There'll be a video there that discusses the differences, the distinction between that and the covenant theology you might find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, And it'll also, they'll have one that deals with uh, what's called New Covenant Theology, uh, which you'll find in some Baptist circles. Uh, There's some problems with New Covenant Theology, primarily with their view of the law. But those videos are extremely helpful uh, for covering material we just simply don't have time to cover. So, if God is governing his kingdom through means of covenant, and it is the new covenant, I would uh, suggest, is how he governs uh, his church, which is the visible representation of the kingdom. So let's look up some verses as we think about this. Somebody turn to Luke chapter 22, and if I could get someone else to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Luke 22 and Ephesians chapter 2. Who would like to read Luke 22, verse 20 for us? And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so this is Christ with his disciples at the Last Supper, celebrating the Passover meal, and he is instituting what we call the Lord's Supper. And he tells them as he takes the the cup of wine that's part of the Passover meal that that now this new institution, that the cup represents his blood, uh, which is shed as the sacrifice of a new covenant uh, that is for us. And he's speaking to his apostles, but he is establishing an ordinance of the new covenant. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Somebody want to read that for us? Therefore, you are no more strangers and 
foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fully framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Okay, so here's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, which is primarily uh, non-Jewish believers, right? Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. This is outside the land of Israel. There might be a few Jews who were there who embraced Christ as the Messiah, but this is largely a Gentile church. And he's speaking to them, and he's telling them that they're being built up. There's now citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. They're being built up into a temple for the Holy Spirit. And the foundation of this is the apostles, the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So the apostles to whom Christ gave this institution of uh, the Lord's Supper as an ordinance of the new covenant... Uh, their teaching, along with the teaching of the prophets, establishes the foundation stones for this new covenant. Well, then we see uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaking to, again, the church in Corinth, largely Gentile. And in verse 25, he says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So here he's speaking again to Gentiles, taking that ordinance of Christ and saying, this is for us. It's an ordinance of the new covenant, and it is for Gentile believers. Now, the reason that I'm taking the time to point this out so specifically is because there are some who would argue and say, no, the new covenant is not for Christians. It's not for the church. It is for Israel after God is done with the church. Uh, Classic dispensationalists have argued that in the past, Uh, And so I just want to make this clear that the new covenant is for the church, uh, including Gentiles and all who believe in Christ. So as we look at um, 2 Corinthians, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And here again, Paul's writing to a Gentile church, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, and he is Uh, addressing these Gentiles, and in verses 1 through 6, he's going to say some things that are important to our understanding of how uh, the the kingdom visible in the church on earth is governed. uh, Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul uh, and his mission team, those who are with him, who are ministers of the gospel, are ministers of the new covenant to Gentiles. And he says that part of what it means for the Gentiles to be members of this new covenant, of this kingdom, is that the Spirit of the living God has written on their hearts. And that's important to what it means to be uh, part of the new covenant. So let's turn to the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this evening. 
And uh, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and get somebody to read for me verses 14 and 15. Okay, so uh, the author of Hebrews here is saying that, first of all, that Christ uh, is the mediator of the new covenant. That means he's the head of the new covenant, right? We see that throughout the New Testament. Christ is the head of the church. He's the head uh, of the new covenant. Uh, He's the mediator of the new covenant, the only mediator between God and men. And so what he's telling us is that there's some unique things about the new covenant uh, as it relates to uh, the covenants of the past Uh, in the Old Testament, Uh, primarily that the blood of Christ shed, the the blood that Christ referred to when he ordained the Lord's Supper, the blood of the new covenant, that his blood cleanses us, uh, cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can serve God. So that's something that the blood of bulls and goats could not do under the Mosaic covenant. Christ's blood actually cleanses us uh, and so that we may serve God. And so he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death. And why? For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. So as we violate the law of God, the moral law, um, we sin and transgress against God, against his law, and we need redemption. And so this is what the new covenant accomplishes via the blood of Christ is our redemption, the cleansing of our conscience and the redemption of our person from our sins. And he says that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we can see already here's a distinction between the new covenant and the Noahic covenant, that the new covenant doesn't apply to every person who ever lived. It applies to those who are called. So Believers are called to be members of this kingdom, of this church. Uh, And when they are called, they are given promises of the eternal inheritance. And so we can think about uh, the old covenant made with national Israel contained promises, right? Promises of life in the land if they kept the covenant. Uh, But the new covenant contains promises of an eternal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. And so This is part of the reason that these things are not just, these two circles are not just right on top of each other because this kingdom extends out into eternity where this one doesn't. Uh, So we have these promises of uh, an eternal inheritance. So now let's turn over to chapter 12 here in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And this is a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning. Uh, But if I could get somebody to read for us verses 22 through 24. Okay, so we we looked at this passage the the first Sunday uh, of this month on Sunday morning in the sermon, but you can see uh, the kingdom of God described here uh, includes uh, the city of God or the the heavenly Jerusalem, which we said was the church, right? It's the... uh, The church is represented as the heavenly Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. But then it also includes uh, 
an innumerable company of angels. And so we have the elect angels, those angels who didn't sin, um, are elect angels, is how they're referred to in other places of Scripture. So they're part of the kingdom as well. But it also includes uh, the general assembly and church of the firstborn. And we said that referred to Old Testament saints. And you'll see, um, if you read very much of the Puritans, uh, particularly I know Calvin will do this often in his commentaries and in his institutes, he will talk about uh, the believers in the Old Testament, uh, particularly those who were like what we would call the remnant within national Israel, and he'll call them the church under the Old Covenant. Uh, And so he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, these saints in the Old Testament. Uh, The passage also says that it talks about the spirits of just men made perfect. And so these are um, saints who are no longer in the flesh, but they're in heaven. So you can see there's all sorts of citizens of the kingdom that are not currently governed by the Noahic covenant because they're not here on earth uh, under those statutes. Uh, And so the new covenant governs a larger citizenship than what is present here on earth, but its visible expression is in the church, and we are here on earth. So let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 8, and this will be our our main passage uh, for this evening. Hebrews chapter 8, and here uh, the author of Hebrews is dealing with the idea of the priesthood. He's comparing the priesthood under the the old covenant, under Aaron, uh, to the priesthood of Christ. And so in in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, in the heavens. And so he's talking about Christ, our high priest under the new covenant, who is seated with God in heaven, so much higher than the priesthood under the old covenant. Well, then if we skip down to verse 6, he says this, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So Christ is our high priest, mediator of the new covenant. New covenant, better promises. Promises of an eternal inheritance rather than a temporary one. Then he continues in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, and now we have an extended quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we have this extended quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, uh, which has been referred to 
uh, by Reformed Baptist scholars and pastors quite often as the constitution of the church. Uh, Sam Waldron and Richard Barcelos published a book a number of years ago called A Reformed Baptist Manifesto in which they talk about this passage in Jeremiah being the constitution of the church. Uh, This serves as sort of the foundation of the church and it was given to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament looking forward to what was to come in Christ, this new covenant that God would make. And so there are a number of features here uh, that are important for us. First, we can see that under the Noahic covenant in the common kingdom, we have the individual, but then when it comes to governing how individuals live together in society, we have two institutions, the family and the civil government. But in the new covenant, we have one institution, the church. The church is both the family of God and it is a nation. We're citizens of a nation of priests. That's how the church is referred to. So the church is both the family and the government of the new new covenant kingdom uh, in its visible manifestation. Uh, So the other thing that we can see is some information about the kingdom. And I'm going to refer again to our confession as I did last week and read a couple of passages out of chapter 26, which is of the church. In paragraph 1, it says this, The Catholic or universal church, which with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we can see that um, the church as a visible representation of the kingdom, but the kingdom itself is invisible, right? It consists of elect angels, Old Testament saints who are New Testament saints and believers since the time of the scripture who are in heaven. It includes all those who have been, are, or will be part of the church, uh, spread throughout time and space. Then in paragraph four, our confession says this, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. So again, we see this idea that Christ is the head, uh, but the confession is also saying several things about the church. First of all, that the church is called by the power of God in Christ. And so we we see that there at the top of our diagram, that the church is called. So it's not just every person alive in the world. It is those who have been called. It is instituted by Christ, and it is ordered and governed by Christ. So again, Christ is the king, right? He's the, the prophet, priest, and king of the church, and he orders the government of his church according to his power. And so we might ask, how does he do that? Well, paragraph 7 of our confession says this, To each of these churches thus gathered according to his mind, declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order and worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. So what is this paragraph saying? It's saying that in the kingdom, in the new covenant kingdom, 
God has once again delegated authority. Over here in the common kingdom, he delegated it to the individual, the family, and the civil government. Over here, he delegated it to the church. He delegated authority to the church. And this delegated authority um, is so that the church can do two things, he says, worship and discipline. Uh, and, And so we have authority to do those two things as long as we are obeying the the commands and rules that he has given us for the use of that authority. So again, authority that is accountable to God, and we'll see that a little bit more as we continue tonight. But look back at this passage in Hebrews as he's quoting from Jeremiah, and notice that he says that he's going to make a new covenant, and he says in verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So this new covenant is different than the old covenant. And obviously the old covenant that he's talking about here is the Mosaic covenant, the one that he made as he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And there's a difference between these two covenants. What is different? Well, They did not continue in the covenant. They broke the covenant. The new covenant is unlike the old covenant in that it cannot be broken. And so we have our doctrines of, uh, you know, perseverance of the saints and eternal security, assurance of salvation. Uh, We cannot lose our salvation. We can't break the new covenant because we didn't keep the new covenant. Christ kept the new covenant for us by his obedience, and we are merely clothed in his righteousness. So... The new covenant is different than the old covenant in that it cannot be broken. Uh, Another difference that we see uh, is in the writing of the law in the two covenants. So in verse 10 he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God's law is going to be written on our hearts. Now if we I'll flip back over here to 2 Corinthians, a passage we already read earlier, chapter 3, verse 3, uh, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says um, that they are an epistle, a testimony to Christ, uh, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So what was written by God previously on stone? The Ten Commandments, the law, right? And so we have to distinguish, again, between uh, the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, the civil law that governed Israel's life together, and the ceremonial ceremonial law uh, that governed their religious life, right? So the ceremonial law has been abrogated and done away with because we now have Christ. So we no longer offer those sacrifices. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, that Christ has done that once for all. Uh, The civil law that we talked about last week, and we're going to talk about more in future weeks to come, the civil law of national Israel is no longer binding on any people uh, by virtue of that institution, but it still is of use to us uh, for, for moral use and its general equity. We talked about that a little bit last week. We'll get into that in future weeks in more detail. But the moral law, we said, is still binding on everyone, everywhere, even in the common kingdom. The moral law of God is binding. And in a large, to a large extent, we said, the civil government is enforcing 
the second tablet of the law, that portion of the law that has to do with how we relate to one another. Do not murder, do not steal, those sorts of things, right? Now, they may not be enforcing do not covet, but to a large extent, they're enforcing uh, this or punishing those who violate the second table of the law. Uh, but in the New Covenant, we're told that the law of God is now written on our hearts. And so we might think about it in this way. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, the law of God was written on our hearts. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But then what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. We fell uh, into sin and slavery to sin, and our hearts died, right? We died spiritually, and so we now have hearts of stone. And so uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and elsewhere, talk about uh, regeneration is when the Holy Spirit takes out our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. That is a heart that is now soft and warm towards God. Uh, And so it is on our hearts that God has now written his law uh, so that we have it. Now, it's still written on the hearts of all men, but because of sin, it's obscured. It's, it's defaced in a way. You might think about a stone tablet that has the law written on it, and, and it's been marred up to where it's not legible anymore. It's still there, but it, it's cloudy. It's difficult for them to see it. They're without excuse, Paul tells us in Romans 1, because God is on display in his creation. The law is written on our hearts, so they're without excuse, but... It's not clear enough for salvation. For salvation, we require the revelation of Christ in the scriptures uh, for us to be saved. But in the new covenant, when we're regenerate and we have new hearts, the law of God is now written on our hearts. Now, we can uh, look at a couple of passages real quick in the Old Testament. Psalm 37, verse 31 Verse 30 and 31 says, The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. And Isaiah 51, 7 says something very similar to that. Talks about the righteous man with the law of God in his heart. So uh, even in the old covenant, those who were regenerate had had the law of God written on their hearts. But not all of national Israel was saved. Not all of national Israel was regenerate. So even under the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant with Israel, not all of them had the law of God written on their hearts. But in the New Covenant, all of those who are members of the New Covenant have the law of God written on their hearts. So that it's, the law is written one way or the other in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The question is, where is it written? On tablets of stone or on your heart? Uh, so... That's a big difference. And so what that ultimately means is that the elect are the people of the new covenant. Those who have been regenerated by the Spirit are visible members of the church, visible members of the kingdom. Uh, But those who in the past have been elect and those in the future who will be elect are members of the kingdom as well. But the kingdom as it presents itself visually on earth in the church consists of those who are now elect and have the, king, the word of God written on their hearts. So, what I want to deal with now is this concept we talked about last week of the sword. Uh, we talked about this idea of the sword. That in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and were expelled from the garden, we have the first mention of a sword in the scriptures, that God set a cherubim at the 
entrance to the garden to guard the way, the path to the tree of life, and he had a flaming sword in his hand. And that was the first mention of the sword, but then we looked at passages like Romans 13 that talk about how the civil government has been given the sword by God in order to punish evildoers. Now, obviously, we don't use swords anymore, right? So it's kind of a metaphor for punishment, for discipline. Parents have been given the sword to discipline their children, not with an actual sword, but simply to discipline their children, right? So this is the concept of a sword. And so the question arises, in the government of the, the new covenant kingdom of God, uh, di- governed by the new covenant, is there a sword that has been delegated to the church? And I would answer, yes, there is. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's asking them a question. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is Peter's big confession. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. And we've talked about this. Who were anointed in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant? Three offices that were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. Christ is the anointed one. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king of the church. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the sword in the new kingdom, in the new covenant kingdom, is called the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now what do we do? with these keys. We bind and we loose things. So let's turn a couple pages over to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20. This is a familiar passage to us. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So what is he talking about here? church discipline, right, where this is a matter of church discipline, and the keys are used to bind and loose. And so what does that mean? Well, what what can the church bind and what can the church loose? We can bind someone to us as a member, and we can loose someone from us, cutting them off, to use the biblical language, they're no longer part of the church, no longer part of the people of God. So when the church uses the keys in this matter, in a matter of church discipline, uh, we are 
exercising the authority that God has delegated to the church uh, in a matter of church discipline. This is different, though, than the sort of use of the sword that the civil government does in the common kingdom because we talked about the sword being retributive, right? A crime is committed and then the sword is used to punish him. That it's proportional, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And that it's preventative. It's supposed to discourage people from continuing to do the same sort of sin. But what isn't there? There's no grace. There's no restoration, right? There's, there's no uh, redemption. But in the exercise of church discipline, that is the goal of church discipline is redemption. So if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth on a matter of church discipline. And in verses 1 through 5, he says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what is he instructing him to do? We have someone in the church who's claiming to be a member of the church, a brother in Christ. He is living in unrepentant sin. He's committed sin. He's continuing to commit that sin. He's not repenting. And Paul says, you need to cut him loose. You need to put him out of the fellowship. We call this excommunication sometimes, right? We have to put him out. Mark him as an unbeliever. You have nothing to do with him. And why? You deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. If he continues down this road of pursuing sin, it may result in the destruction of his flesh. But the purpose is that his spirit may be saved. So the purpose of church discipline is redemption, restoration. It's not simply an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's not the the goal here. The goal is redemption. So, So the use of authority in the church is for a different purpose than it is in the common kingdom. Now, we could see if we turned over to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 11, we don't have time for that, but that Paul instructs them that the discipline has worked. It served its purpose. Uh, The man has suffered. He's repented. He needs to be brought back into fellowship at that time. So uh, church discipline works. But when we're doing this, There's another distinct difference between the authority exercised in the church and the authority exercised by the civil government. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we can see what that difference is. Paul says, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So our use of the sword, so to speak, in the church is spiritual. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. Right? The civil government 
actually punishes people physically. They lock them up in prison. They put them to death. Uh, we don't do that in the church. Somebody commits a sin and is unrepentant, right? we don't put them to death. We're not, we don't have capital punishment. We put them out of the church. We disassociate them from fellowship in the church. We say they're spiritually dead. They're not alive. They're not repenting. Uh, so we're dealing with the spirit, not with the flesh. I mean, we're dealing with matters of the flesh. Sin happens in the flesh, but we're not punishing them uh, with corporal punishment. In Ephesians 6.17, what is the, the sword called? What is it? Anybody know that off the top of their head? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right, So the sword that the church has is the scriptures, the word of God, which it's a word, it's a book. How do, how do we do discipline with a book? Right, It's not a sword. We're not hitting people with this, literally. What do you do with a word? You proclaim it. You teach it. You believe it. You obey it. That's what we do with the word. And so the church's use of the sword is to proclaim the gospel to the nations, to proclaim the truth of Christ, to teach it to those who are in the church, to call people to believe it and obey it. So that is the the authority that is given to the church. It's quite different than the sword that is given to the civil government. In Hebrews chapter 4, Get back over to Hebrews, a couple more passages here. In Hebrews chapter 4, I get somebody to read verses 11 through 13. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. So the sword of the Spirit is so sharp, it's like metaphysical sharp, right? It's not even cutting down to the molecular level. It's cutting down to the metaphysical level, sundering soul and spirit. Um, And it is for our obedience, right? He said in verse 11 that if anyone falls according to the same example of disobedience. So he's talking to the church again and talking about disobedience in the church The sword of the Spirit is to be used to bring us into obedience to Christ. We saw last week as we looked at the authority delegated to the civil government that in multiple places that uh, the scriptures call for Christians even to be submissive to the civil government. What about in the church? What about in the kingdom? Well, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So there's an accountability for those who are in positions of leadership in the church and and use the authority given to the church who teach the word. We're told teachers will be held doubly accountable for what they teach. The weight of accountability on the use of this sword in the kingdom is far heavier than the weight of accountability that the civil government faces for the authority delegated to them. 
we are responsible for the souls, the eternal souls of people. Uh, so there's a weight of accountability here. There is a call uh, to submit ourselves to the leaders in the church. When Paul is writing to Timothy, let's flip over to 1 Timothy. We've got two, two more passages to look at. Let's flip over to 1 Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy, and much of this letter is given to a discussion of the church and how it is organized, qualifications for elders and deacons uh, and ministry to widows and various people within the church. And so as Paul writes this letter, uh, he, he says this in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority. So the church is to be praying for our civil government. We're to pray for them. We're to pray to intercede for them, to give thanks for them, to make supplication to God concerning them. And then he says that it's for this purpose, that we, that is the church, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the church is supposed to pray for the civil government, Why? So the civil government will not just punish evildoers, but in doing so, in exercising their authority, they will establish a peaceful and safe society on earth where the church can then go about its business, which is the proclamation of the word so that people would believe and come to faith, right? It is God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so uh, we need to be able to be free to proclaim the truth. Uh, So the civil government is supposed to do that. The church and the civil government are not supposed to be at odds with one another. They're not supposed to be opposed to one another. They are both servants of God working together in tandem to accomplish God's purposes in the world, which is the proclamation of the gospel to the saving of men's souls. Uh, And so this is uh, how God would have it to be. Now, we know it doesn't always work that way, right? The government doesn't always use its authority properly. The church doesn't always use its authority properly. Uh, So there are problems, and we, in the future sessions, we will look at how do we navigate that as believers. Uh, But Right now, just let it be known that the civil government is supposed to work for the church, with the church, so the church can do its job, uh, which is to make disciples. And so, you know, we think about the Great Commission in Matthew 18. Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth, in the kingdom of heaven and in the kingdom of earth, all authority belongs to Christ. And he has delegated it to these different institutions for the purpose that the church might be able to proclaim the gospel to the nations and to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them the word, teach them the truth so that we might live in obedience to it. Uh, So that is the distinction between the government of the common kingdom and the government of the kingdom of heaven. So beginning next week, we're going to take probably more than one week uh, to begin looking at 
Christ's parables concerning the kingdom uh, in the Gospels and looking at the nature of the kingdom, uh, and then we'll make some comparisons between it and the common kingdom and move on from there. But let's close this evening in a word of prayer.